There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the show, Paddy. Um, author of the new book, Hats, Hand Wraps and Headaches, A Life on the Inside of Boxing. How are you doing today? Very good, brother. Very good. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Very uh, pleased to have you join us today. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. How's life over in Swindon treating you? I can't complain, you know. Mm. The, lo- the lockdown makes you to think a few different ways, so... I can't complain. I'm just trying to put into action what I come up with. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paddy, you've put, this year, 2020, you've decided to put out your, uh, is it is it a memoirs? Is it memoirs? Is it a tell? Is it a biography or, you know, or an autobiography? What's the inside story on your life inside of boxing? Well, it wasn't, it was a, a buddy of mine that trains in the gym. He came up to me around two years ago, said he wanted to write a book on boxing. And I said, uh, fair play. And then he said, well, I'd like to write it on you and, and your journey through boxing. So that was kind of it. He came up with it. He wanted to do it. Um, he likes he likes writing. He's he's wrote articles before uh, of how boxing coaching can teach the teachers in schools how to approach pupils and how to, to help them learn. Um, so he wanted to write a book. So I said, okay. But it was kind of all down to him. It's his, it's his, his idea. He's hard work. And uh, he got a deal. A publishing deal for it, and that was it. Brilliant. Did you have to put many hours into it? Uh, and also, is it written in the first person? Is it is it your story in your words, or is it kind of your the, the center project? It's a bit of everything. There's uh, there's Layla's in it. She's talking in it. Uh, James Tony's talking in it. Layman Brewster's in it. Eamon, uh a few of my uh, fighters from here, Duke and Ryan and that. So, um, and then he talks in it. And then I talk in it. <laughs> There's a lot of people talking in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but it's, I don't know what you call it, memoirs, or what the hell you'd call it. It's To me, it's just a book with a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you happy with the finished product? Is it a good tale? Because I, I know you have a good tale. Um, I, I think I'm happy with it. Um, it's It was a... I think Teach did a great job. He he kind of wrote it in different... He, he might start off when I was 12 years old, but then he'd jump ahead to something 30 years later, and then he'd go back again. And So it's nice that you don't have to pick it up and kind of remember where you were. You can read a chapter, put it down, and put that to bed, move on to another one. Um, I, I, I'm pleased with it. He'd done a good job, and I'm happy for him. I'm happy for me, me as well, my involvement in it. So it's nice. Nice. Yeah. Paddy, uh, in recent years, you're probably best known in the UK and Ireland for your work in the corner of George Groves, who's been involved in some of the biggest occasions in British boxing, culminate, well, not culminating, but the biggest one being the, the rematch with Carl Froch two in uh, Wembley Stadium in front of 80,000 people. Um, but you have a long story in boxing yourself. You grew up in Clare, on the Clare-Limerick border, and why boxing when you were a kid? I don't know. I had done I had done some judo when I was younger, and uh, I just fancied getting into the boxing. It wasn't. Uh, I didn't go there because I was being bullied. Even though I was, I did go through a bad time of being bullied. But it wasn't that reason I'd gone to the gym. I'd kind of, like I said, done judo on that anyway. But 
I suppose I was only confident within the realm of where I'm supposed to, where I've learned how to, to do that. So in the judo school or so on. So that's that. Then when I got, uh, when I came up against uh, problems outside, it, it was a bit different with, with um, this group of, group of young men back then that tormented me for three years. But, but, um, but the boxing was just something that I loved, man. I just, I just was, I, I loved to look at the photographs, the pictures. Don't forget, we only had RT1 and RT2 growing up. <laughs> we didn't have any more channels, so we didn't get to watch loads of the boxing. But I used to like to listen to it. I used to like to look at it. I loved watching, looking at the pictures, even some of the big fights. Uh, and I had a couple of videos of Tommy Hearns against Sugar Ray Leonard and that. So I don't know. There was no one else in the family that was really into it. I just, I just had a passion for it. Yeah. Um, the, the boxing gave you a good respite, though, from the bullying. Did it give you a bit of confidence that you were able to look after yourself on top of the judo as well? And was the bullying more kind of mental or physical torture that they were inflicting? Uh, it was definitely physical, but then it turned into just mental torture. Just, you know, you'd, you'd see, you know, you could have the odd day where you're held down and give a, a, a kick in the face or knee in the face. And then, then other times you might just be abused in front of a crowd and slapped around, you know. But, um, it was then the mental torture again, you know, when you're 12 years old and you see the guys then around the corner and you know you have to walk around that corner. Wow. It can be a lot to take in. So it was a bit of both. Yeah. Did um did your experiences as a teenager kind of, it was that part of what gave you your rambling nature? Because you left home at 15, didn't you? Hit the road or earlier than that, you used to hitch around Ireland, go on trips and all by yourself. I sure did, man. Yeah, I, uh, from the age of eleven or that, I would um, I would thumb down to places like uh, Kilkee, which is like sixty miles away from us, and I'd I'd go out onto the road after I had breakfast and start thumbing, and people would stop and give you a lift and say, "Where are you going?" You and they'd get there, and then I'd thumb home. And um, I uh, I remember I was around twelve or so, and I was coming back from somewhere one day. And uh, I got picked up by this a pilot, and uh, he's one of his cabin crew. They had flew into Shannon Airport, and they were driving into to Limerick to stay. So they picked me up, and of course they were they were from America. So they were thinking, "What's this young kid? I was around 12 years old. What's he doing out here?" And I said, "I'd just be wandering around." I said, "Where are you from?" And they said, "Oh, we're pilots, and we're from America." And that. So I invited him out to me mum and dad's house. <laughs> And uh, I, know I brought him in through, and my mom and dad were sat in the kitchen. I goes, hey, man, my dad, I said, this is such and such and such and such. I'm off out to play. And I left them there. <laughs> they had never met them. <laughs> and they were stood in the kitchen. And when I came back around three or four hours later, there was some dinner on the go, and they were sat there <laughs> having a few drinks. But uh, I was just always like traveling around, man. I left home at 15, then went to Dublin, and then traveled all around Europe and just slept outside in sleeping bags and I just enjoyed traveling. Yeah. So you had, you had this bit of amateur experience from St. Francis gym in, uh, in Limerick and you decided to turn prep. Yeah. Before, but it, it wasn't all too successful, was it? What? It was zero and five and you decided that's it now, enough of that. You, you, might, you must have had a dream about being a boxer but when it wasn't too successful, did it kind of give you a knockback or did you take it in your stride? Oh, no, no, it was a huge knockback. It just, to, to realize, listen, to realize that you can't do something when you need to, that you really want to be able to do, of course, that's that's crushing. And then you would think that, well, I was a decent enough amateur. I was a Limerick champion and a silver medalist in the Munster. So at least I knew what, I knew what my left and right hand was for. Yeah. But uh, then I just, when I went to England, I just took a lot of drugs <laughs> and um, I did, didn't uh, plan to turn pro. I was I had a bit of a bother one night and then somebody had said to me the next day, why don't you pop down to the gym? And I went down and then I just kind of fell back into it. I should have I should have gone back into the amateurs and got my got my rhythm back and got my confidence back in the amateurs, but I didn't. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big blow, like you said, when you realize that you want something, you want something, but you you don't know how to get there. Yeah. What was your drug of choice? And was it mainly before your pro boxing career and, and after, or, or what was the kind of time period? No. 
It was before. It was that. It was. It was in between my amateurs and the pros. It was that. That's why I'm saying I just fell into the pros, kind of because of it, as a way of just kind of stopping. But it would be pretty much anything and anything that you could get your hands on of a weekend, you know. So it might, you know, stick a whole heap of acid tablets in you for a day, or you know, snort a load of speed and drink and smoke, and it was pretty much whatever was there. Yeah. But um, after after a while, that was no longer of interest to you uh, and when you joined the boxing. And then you came out of your boxing career. And I believe, did you go traveling again before you met, met up with Freddie Roach via Steve Collins? And then a new career beckoned. Yeah, I I did. I went, I went, uh, I've always kind of traveled. I traveled even after the pro boxing. I had gone traveling again and, and come back, back into the UK. But then... At this stage, I had left. I um, I had left here in '96, and I went over to Jersey, and I got to. I just had mutual friends that knew Freddie as well, and we just got talking in the gym one time. And then when he came back to train Steve for uh, the the second Ben fight, I think it was. Uh, no, I had met him in the Ben fights, and then he came back for the Frederick Sellier fight, and uh, we just talked a bit more and met him in the gym a few times. And then he said to me, "Do you want to?" How about you come back and uh, work with me as my assistant in LA? And it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a lifeline. And like I said before, it was like Santa Claus saying, "Do you want to come back to the grotto and see where the toys are made?" <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, I'm very, very, very grateful for that. Um, what was it like inside the gym? Um, I, I believe you were granted a four-poster bed to sleep on, and uh, it was a who's who, obviously, at the, the World Card Gym. Is a hoo-hoo. I I had to I had to tell myself and remind myself every day that if I was going to be any use to Freddie at all, I couldn't be I couldn't be overly startled or or you know excited about meeting any of the fighters that he was training because you'd be no use to them. You'd be just a fan. So uh, I used to just you know I'd remind myself regularly that they're, they're just dudes in there training and just listen to what Freddie's doing, keep an eye on him. And when I see that at the same time, that I'll pop my word in there and remind them of what I see that he's trying to get through to them. And so it was, uh, it was, it was great to be able to watch Freddie at work. He's a great technician. And um, to be able to, to be able to go from where I was to there was fantastic for me at the perfect time. So that four poster bed, I was grateful for it. That big, yeah. that big four poster bed that was covered in snot and blood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because what I was getting, I was you. You say that you you slept in you slept in the ring, did you, for a while when you got there? You tell. Well, the first couple of nights, I I slept on the massage bed, but I I kept rolling off it and landing three foot land to the floor with a big whack. Yeah. So I come off of that pretty quick and just uh, would clean the boxing ring at night and just lie down in there and that was uh, perfect for me yeah um, so you ended up training Leila Ali for I think 11 fights spending a lot of time with her and her and you knew her husband and her father obviously as well and um, you tied, we spoke before back in 2013 before the first Frost Grove fight and uh, you were telling me how Muhammad Ali asked you up to his hotel room and he wanted to ru- run the rule over you mm. speak about was it women boxing and religion in that order I think you said in that order, you are correct, sir. In that order, hundred percent, hundred percent. That was uh, that was the first time I had met him. Lally had uh, she was doing the announcement for um, her first world title fight against Susie Taylor, and uh, she was doing the grand opening of her gym at the time, and he came and did the grand opening, and then uh, so I left him alone because the gym was packed out, as you can imagine. With lines down the road waiting to meet Mohammed. And uh, when the gym was closed, it was only me, him, and Lally. And he told me to sit down beside him. And then uh, he, he kept beckoning me in. He goes, come here, come here, come here. And I leaned in, I leaned in. Then he goes, are you a pimp? And I goes, no, man, I'm not a pimp. I said, I trained your daughter. And he was, he just started laughing. And that was it. So I got back to my work. And, um, a couple of hours later, I was driving down the strip in my car, and uh, my phone went, and it was Lally's sister Hannah, and she asked me where I was, 
and I told her, and she said, uh, she goes, Daddy wants to see you. Will you come see him? So I was like, yeah. And uh, obviously wasn't going to say I'm busy. <laughs> so I said, yeah. And uh, went up there, and then, like you said, we chatted about women, uh, boxing, and religion. He finished by getting out the Bible and then getting out another book he had with all the contradictions of what was in the Bible. Very interesting two and a half hours. Yeah, no doubt. And when, when Muhammad Ali returned to his roots, I guess, the same roots as you have down in County Clare, you accompanied him on the trip or you met him there, wasn't it? That must have been an amazing Yeah, day. I brought I brought over my son, uh, DJ, and I brought one of my students, uh, Callum. Callum was around probably 14 or 15 at the time, and DJ would have been around three, I suppose. And um, I brought them over. Muhammad's wife called me and said, "We're going to be down there. Uh, come over and meet us." And I let them. I let them know that you're coming. I said, "Okay." So I got to the gate, and there's a whole heap of people outside this gate where he's inside doing the speech. I said to the security, um, "I said I know this is going to appear like a bit of a long shot, brother." I said, "But I'm here to, <laughs> I'm here to catch up with Muhammad." And he was like, "Yeah." He said, "You see all them people." <laughs> He said, so are they, every one of them. <laughs> and you're not getting in the same as all of them. <laughs> and I said, okay, look, I said, I'll, I'll give I'll give uh, his wife a call and I'll just wait here. Is it okay if I wait here? He says, you can wait there as long as you want. <laughs> so then I called her and then somebody came out and said to him, I'll oh, let him in. And he came over and he went, Jesus, I never saw that happen. <laughs> But yeah, I caught up with him over there in, uh, I think it's, his granddad, isn't it, was born in Ennis as well. Dave, That's wasn't where it? he was born. Dave Grady, and it was, was it his, uh, his great-granddad or his granddad? But um, yeah, it looked like an emotional sure. time. It looked like an emotional time. Your name, you've, you've been linked with a lot of, you spent a lot of time with some boxing royalty, like uh, even the trainers I can link your name to, like uh, Freddie Roach at the start, but you spent time with Roger Mayweather, Buddy McGirt, Emmanuel Stewart. Adam Booth and, and even Brendan Ingle, like that great. No, I didn't spend I didn't spend any time with Brendan at all. That was uh, that was something I was gutted for because I wanted to meet him. I just uh, I did spend all the time with the, the rest of those men, but but uh, Brendan Ingle to me has always been probably overall I would have said the biggest example of what you would like to do in a community. So he didn't just, he didn't, um, you know, work with champions. He built them from the very beginning, from the seed. Um, and also the gym was a place where everybody, anybody, any color, any country, any religion could get together. So that to me is uh, what's kind of, it's missing in society today anyway. It's not missing in every, I'm sure, sure there's lots of places that have it but in society is missing and he had it he had his own little world there where everyone got along so I was gutted because I had asked Johnny Nelson would he be able to arrange that I could go up and, and you know and spend a few hours chatting with him I didn't want to just arrive and, and not be able to have a chance to chat with him and he arranged it and then I never got around to he said it's all cool just let them know and I never got around to actually making time to go up there and the next thing he had passed I was gutted about that yeah yeah, he, I I met him. I was lucky enough to meet him and just uh, interview him on one occasion. He was in Belfast. I think he had Junior Witter was over. It was coming to the end of the, the major Winklebank thing, and yeah, we spent some time just chatting, and he could just see the uh, everyone just had such reverence for him, and uh, he just he just put, put the put the microphone underneath him, and much like yourself, he just talked and talked and talked. So that was pretty handy from my perspective. <laughs> one question, on you go. <laughs> <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I, 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 was got to, I was got to the day I turned on the radio and, and, and heard that he had passed. Yeah. And uh, I just, I was, I accepted everyone's going to pass. I was gutted I didn't get the chance to spend some time with a dude that powerful. You'd, you'd learn a lot just listening to him, educating you about different things. Yeah. And just before we bring you back to uh, Britain for the, the Frotch Grove saga, um, your time with James Roney sound, sounded quite interesting when we talked before. I, uh, I believe he used to get a bit of stick from his uh, entourage, but James himself was fairly respectful. James was, yeah, because we were... Uh... I think the, the 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 time you're on about is I was I was wrapping James's hands one day, and um, he had these men just stood around him, you know, and they'd come to the gym with him every day. They wouldn't do much; they would just come to the gym and just be there shouting and hanging around him. And uh, James said to me out of the blue one day, I suppose I'd been working with him around three months, four months, and uh, he said to me out of the blue, he goes, "Hey, Paddy Duke," he said, "Did you box?" And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> That's all that went through my mind. I just thought, here we go. And uh, I just thought, what? don't forget, there wasn't no Google search back then. It had just come out with it. So there wasn't much information on there. You could have got away with lying. Yeah. But, uh, but um, I just thought, do I lie about this because I know where it's going? Or do I just go with the truth and then just it'll be what it'll be? So I went, yeah, I did hoping he'd leave it there. And he said, ah, amateur pro. And I was like, ah, not a chance. Will I take this chance and just say amateur? And I said, ah, boat. And he says, oh, yeah. He said, how would you do as a pro? And I was like, I was shit. <laughs> and uh, he started giggling, and he's and he's and uh, he's, one of his buddies goes, if you were so shit, what the hell are you doing training James? You shouldn't be training James. Words to that effect. Yeah. And James, on the, on the, the flip of a coin, just went, shut your mother effing mouth. Go get my boots out of the car, said to the dude. And he went, James, I'm just... And he goes, shut up. He said, there's two people in this gym train me. One of them's Freddie, the other dude's wrapping my hands. Now go get my boots. And inside, I just thought, thank God I told the dude, but being young as a pro coach... Because Freddie was, you know, had given me the opportunity to come in at such a high level. So I, I, I wasn't at that stage a confident coach. I was just, I was just learning how to coach, learning how to be confident, passing on information to these type of men and getting them to, to listen to you and, and do it at the, at the right time. And um, so that was a big, that was a big, uh, acknowledgement or a tick that okay well if he's happy with what he just heard and he's been happy with me for the last four months okay I'm going the right direction yeah and would it be fair to say that some of James like of all the influential men I listed from Emmanuel Stewart to Buddy McGirt to Freddie Roach would it be fair to say that some of James Tony's attitude actually rubbed off on you was, was more influential than most because the way he approached the boxing game yeah, I've read in subsequent interviews with you is, is something that you kind of took on board and it's his attitude, really. Well, I think attitude is everything, isn't it? I was uh, I was well able to fight. I just couldn't fight when you told me it's going to be Saturday night at 7.30. Do you understand me? So 
you see lots of guys in the gyms that are well able and you see them and they can they can spar and they can do it but when it comes to doing it they're not able to and that's all down to your attitude so i've always been impressed more with your mind tells your body what to do so it doesn't matter what your body's able to do if your mind isn't telling it what to do at the right time yeah so now we know that you got to do two things as a fighter just like the art of war with sun tzu it's not, it's not enough to prepare yourself how can you undermine the other people that you're coming up against and and if you can beat them if you can beat them without engaging in war which has been proven to be possible obviously not in boxing because you got to finalize it but if you can beat them or if you can make a man believe you're going to beat him he'll act accordingly so i don't see mind games as being something that is uh, an interference or something that you say all right well enough of the mind games now let's get down to serious work mm-hmm. i believe that the mind games are serious work but they don't deserve necessarily more attention than obviously your skill set or anything else but they deserve equal attention because there's no point in being technically prepared if you're not mentally prepared and mentally able to stay calm under pressure and and be able to make those calm emotional adjustments when you feel your rhythm getting out of sync and stuff like that yeah. when you look at guys like James Tony or Floyd Mayweather or Bernard Hopkins i mean they were masters at it bernard hopkins was an absolute master and as soon as that fight that he knew it was going to be made he would then bit by bit start to psychologically undermine his opponent and uh, i love the art of that i love the art of like advertising making somebody think of something without you even them realizing that you've done it yeah. and it's powerful isn't it it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an important part be it be it men be it men at war countries at war or two men in a ring it's it's the art of war isn't it yeah and that brings us along nicely to george groves because my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong so you you were you were assisting adam booth with some of his fighters and maybe george was lacking in some of these some of the ability maybe to get himself properly up for a fight on a saturday night some of these things the, uh, the the mental game it's actually something that became quite good at and you would have been seen by outsiders as someone who excelled in it but a lot of that was down to you and the preparation you put in or that's that's what impressed Adam Booth would it be kind of on the right track there no I'd see I, I think um, no I wouldn't if I listened to that overall I wouldn't necessarily agree with a brother because uh, just because a man isn't doing something yet doesn't mean necessarily that he's lacking I mean it just means you might have added something else in. Um I think any coach that works with a fighter unless he's there just to pick up a few quid and and, and steal something in the middle of the night he's he's part of that team or wants to work with that fighter or be involved in that because he believes he can add something to it. Yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't be there. Adam Booth to me is is one of the best that I've been around too absolutely he's 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 got to be the best manager i've been around he's uh he's obsessed with what he does which makes him excellent so at no stage would i say that i was brought in there because there was something lacking um the the way i came on board with george i met i had met adam with david when i came back from the states I just called Dave we had a catch up because I had worked with David a bit when he was an amateur and I called him and we had a catch up um but then I met Adam at an amateur dinner show and he said yeah no I I met Adam I met Adam at an amateur dinner show one night up in Birmingham and he said to me I'm signing two fights tonight he said George against the Gale and I said I think George beats that if he can keep emotionally not getting involved with the Gale and he said and david against klitschko and i said i hope it's vladimir because i thought that vitali would um jump all over david early on that was my opinion be right or wrong that was my opinion so he said okay and that was it it was kind of in passing and then a few days later he rang me and he said what did you mean if uh, your opinion on george if george cannot get involved with the gale 
And I said, well, I just think that's the Gale has a very easy way about of making you not take not have taste for him, you know. Plus, they have that same amateur schooling and that little bit of bad blood there, and it'll be down to whoever can keep their composure. Not necessarily who is who's able to beat the other man, but as long as George doesn't get caught up in all that bullshit and all, and uh, get emotionally involved in it. And um, so he said, "Oh, do you want to pop down to gym and have a chat?" So I said, "No problem." We did that, and then. The only technical thing I added in for that fight, the only technical thing I did all was um, I said, when DeGale does pull away from you, don't hunt him down. Instead of being one step outside him, or you can hunt him down, but don't close the gap. Instead of being one step outside, be two steps outside. Because when DeGale starts to pull away from you, he's trying to suck you in. He can feel that it's not going right going forward, that you're changing the space too much. And he's just trying to draw you onto something. So bring pressure, but do it from two steps outside. So you're too far away for him to land on you. But what he wants to do is get you, get you, you to come inside so he can either fire off, walk you onto stuff, and tie you up. So that was the only technical thing I put in there. And that, that was round eight, I believe, and round 12 that that played out. Um, but that's how I met, how I met them, and I worked with him with the Glenkoff Johnson fight. But then we just drifted away again. I was down here doing my own thing, and and uh, we hadn't worked together for a while before he called me. And then, like the fan man, you come in as his coach before uh, Frotch won. People were wondering before who would have split with Adam Booth. Was it all a ploy? You know, but was this a magic trick? You know, was Booth going to appear at the at ringside? I think you said, "Well, if it was, I wouldn't tell you." <laughs> well, I'd have been stupid to tell you if that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. But you'd have seen a surprised look on my face if he actually did come in. I'd have thought, shit, I just had the wool pulled over my eyes for nine and a half weeks. Yeah, no doubt. Um, a, a great fight. Was George, was George Groves robbed of his victory in that fight? Or how do you assess it all these years later? Well, we definitely... That definitely had to be our take, didn't it? Um, he was... I think he was winning the second fight easier than the first fight. Um, I think the first fight was more dramatic. And, of course, when 20,000 people was expecting George to be knocked out between the first two or three rounds and go home, obviously the fact that he puts Carl on his butt in the first round and sets a frantic pace and is going to war in a technical way with with everyone, somebody that everyone knew was a warrior. I think that just appeared more dramatic, but I think that George, you know, he was taking his fair share of, uh, of body shots in that first fight. It was taking quite a lot. Um, yes, he was hurt in round eight, but I think he deserved to be allowed the opportunity to go a bit further because he had been so dominant. It was a big thing before the fight, because for nine and a half weeks, I was reading that, you know, Carl has got an iron chin and George has got a glass one. And you can't help but read these things every day as the proof is in the 20,000 people who came to the fight. You can't help but read these things every day and, and, and start to believe them in some way. And even if you don't up here believe them in the front of your head, at the back of your head, that starts to be stored as the truth. And um, I had brought it up the day before at the rules meeting. I said, I want to address what's been in the media over the last nine and a half weeks about Carl having an iron chin and George having a glass one. I said, yes, Carl has got an iron chin, but you can't be believing that George has a glass one. I said, he's undefeated. He's only been dropped once and he got up to knock that man out. How do you come up with the fact he's got a glass chin? You know, Trinidad used to get knocked down. That was the thing that woke him up. And then he'd come and start tearing, knocking people out. So I please, please, I want to make a big point to this. You must be aware that this is not a fight to get into position for a big fight. This is the big fight. This is the world title. And you have one man that's proven it, but you've also got another man who's proven he deserves the opportunity. And he's undefeated. And be aware of that. And then when it happens then that it got stopped in the manner that we I had spoke to him about, it was kind of hard to swallow at that point, you know? Yeah. I don't think he did it with any malice, but it was just hard to swallow at that point. Paddy, just to ask about the stoppage itself. I mean, it, it, obviously, 
George had dominated the fight. Carl had been wobbled numerous times. He should have been really deducted a point, I felt. I think it was the round before for a forearm charge in the corner. And then there was shots yeah. after the bell. There was Everton. But that's irrelevant when you come to the stoppage. Yeah, George was clipped. He was going up and down a bit. But his hands were both by his by his ears, defended himself uh, when the ref uh, stopped it, called it. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it at the time. I, I watched it again before this interview, and I still can't believe it now. I just don't know how that fight was stopped there and then. Well, ultimately, I you know, we agree with you, and that's why... That's why uh, we went for an appeal, and uh, and that's why, thank God, we won the appeal. Um, now, of course, you'd want to win your world title on the first night, but uh, it it um, it didn't harm him that he had to go again, did it? Because uh, some people go through their whole career and even win world titles and still don't end up really financially secure after it, and uh, he was able to achieve that before he won a world title. Obviously, of course, if you said it to George, he'd go, I don't give a damn about the, that money. I'd have, if I wanted to be treated right and get my world title the first time, of course. But uh, if there's a silver line and the silver line and was he got the rematch, he got well paid, and he eventually proved everyone wrong and became a world champion. So, And, and he'll go down in the history books as it. But, yeah, it was a split decision to make at the time. George did get hurt. I think he should have been offered the... Uh, the the time just a few more seconds to see how he reacts to that last shot, and then and then just I, I, it it did dawn on me that at the time George took the loss, a couple obviously uh, maybe thirty seconds afterwards very well. I noticed you said something to him straight away when they they were calling the result that you weren't going to. I don't know. I don't know what you said. I want to find out what you said. You whispered something in his ear as the ref was calling or the announcer was calling out the result, and then again at ringside when he was being interviewed alongside Carl and Carl said the fight should have been stopped he whispered something into his ear again were you just trying to keep him calm and not to lose the rag and be saying it was going to be a rematch or what exactly can you recall roughly about what you were saying to him then I'll tell the honest truth I can't remember what I said to him the first time and that's the honest truth of it the second time when he was ringside I, I was still behind him I couldn't hear George or Carl actually talking. So it was Carl that was talking first. I couldn't actually hear him because I was stood too close, but the, the microphones were obviously being pointed out for other people. So I couldn't really hear him. But as the interview was going on, I could hear the crowd starting to boo and turn on him. So I just whispered into his ear. I said, stay humble. They've turned on him. It's in our favor. Just, keep, just be humble. And that's all I just said. It was just for him to be cool They've already made their judgment because you can hear them booing him. So if you start to, if you start to let's say, you know, give out or, or, or start start cussing or giving out about what had happened, you're not going to get any extra benefit because they've already agreed with you. They're booing him, and you're only going to make yourself look bad. So I just thought that was just just to stay cool, you know. Yeah, no, because I've always wanted to ask that, and that's because he did, and it was. He just he played it perfectly at the end at what must have been the, the worst moment of his boxing career, sitting beside the guy who he felt had robbed him and who he didn't like, and he still managed mm. to keep quiet, knowing probably full well with your a little bit of advice there that this is going down again, you know, in the next twelve months. Yeah, um, he's he's uh, George is is very mentally tough, extremely mentally tough, the same as anyone. You can you can take things for granted. You can believe that you're you're too good for one man, and that could take away some of the sharpness of the the, the nerves that will keep you completely on point. But when when George knows he's up against it, there's no better man, no better man. And just just finally for me, um, sorry, Kev. <laughs> like I mean, Carl was coming off uh, the Kessler fight, a, a super win for himself, and you know he'd already had the Butte fight and he, he'd done everything he was going to do in boxing. Do you think I'd, he underestimated George, but he really underestimated George for that first fight? Yeah, I think he said that himself, hasn't he? He did, he did underestimate him and, uh, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, when you underestimate somebody and all of a sudden you're on your ass in the first round looking up, it's not enough to, it, it, it takes a lot to then actually rejig it and go, hang on. It's not a case of just jumping up and going, oh, okay. It's not that easy. You've you've been you've been 
mentally relaxed throughout camp. You didn't just get mentally complacent on the night. You would have been complacent training. So now you might have hit all the marks. You might have ticked your book and ran as good as you've ever done and lifted more than you ever have and done all of that. But there's a part of you then will possibly make you even more complacent. The fact that you already think you're too good for this man, he's not ready for me, and then you've already put a great camp in as well, physically, you can become even more complacent. But it's not something that happens on the night. It's something that's slowly been building in you. So then all of a sudden, when you realize, damn, I call that wrong, I'm on my ass, what's going wrong? It's you've, you've got to be able to switch back on, you know, three months of complacency. So... It it's a, it was a hard thing to do, but uh, uh, I actually think I think George was winning the second fight easier. Um, the the whole idea was to have that type of fight for you know six eight rounds of the second fight, and then turn the the last third of it into the first fight when he'd be more fresh. But um, obviously, you all best laid plans go to rest sometimes, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Just psychologically wise, I think George, I, I think Carl could have been a bit complacent. That's the nature of the beast. And what about going in, going into the rematch? Do you think, uh, in retrospect, did you make any mistakes? You know, obviously George Rose suffered a pretty like a pretty bruising stoppage, but he was up against a top fighter. Did you, on reflection, did you guys make any mistakes, or were you happy enough? And the proof being how he progressed, how he done up to the point of the knockout. Very interesting question, sir. Because I think we had more, let's say, be it mistakes or things we needed to address after the first fight than the second fight. Uh, because we took more punishment in the first fight, um, we probably had the success of dropping Carl too soon. Um, and you can see that throughout history, that sometimes when you have success, when one man has success, early success against another man, he all of a sudden thinks, that's there, I can get that again when I want, and, and leaves it too late. Or he thinks, I got him, and starts to put too much on too soon. And then the other man stays there, and now you've used up a lot, a lot of energy early on, and you, how many gears can you go to? And I think that happened to us in the first one. I think the fact that he he dropped Carl early and George knows he does have world-class power in his right hand and now he's proven to himself the game plan is working. We've took his back foot off the floor. We've dropped him. I think we started pulling some things out of the bag a bit too soon. Um, and uh, who knows? To have... That was our first fight with me as his head coach in the corner. So when you're telling him, just nice and relaxed, spill it back a bit, don't forget, his voice is hearing that new voice for the first time under pressure. So he might be hearing it, but he's also, hang on, I'm doing good, I'm having a success, I'll keep going. Um, in the second fight, after, the, after the, the, the fourth round, so my thing was for the second fight, Carl, George's feet are always going to be sharper than Carl's. George is quicker than Carl, and George has a better, more varied jab than Carl. Yes, Carl can find the best of men, even with just 15 seconds left, like he did with Jermaine Taylor. You can never, ever, ever, ever get complacent against a man like Carl. When there is other fighters where you should never be complacent against, but you're, you're able to be now and again, and you get away with it. You can't with a man like Carl, because... If he finds any type of crack at all, he'll jam something in it and then he'll start prying it open. And um, But you were always going to be quicker with your feet and a better jab. So to me, especially with what he had taken from the first fight, I knew we could give Carl a lot psychologically to think leading into it about what we're going to jump on him again. But that would allow time to make Carl overthink and to get ready for this big explosion but George then to, to take those rounds in an easier fashion because of that at the end of the fifth round George came back really the first four rounds I don't think Carl came near him um, when they interviewed David and, and, and uh, 
and Emil Can Ring said they were saying the same things. And and I forget who it was who was interviewing, but he kept saying to him, You mean Carl? And they were like, No, we think George is dominated with Jab. And he goes, Yeah, you mean Carl? And he went, No, I don't. I said, I mean George. Um, but then George came back at the end of the fifth round and he had been up against the ropes for around five, ten seconds. Carl opened up on him, George caught it all on his arms. So he came back with a little smug smile on him. And I said, no good. And he looked at me shocked and he goes, what do you mean? I said, no good. We didn't spend six months in the middle of the ring for you to go to up against the rope. Get back into the middle of the ring. I said, that's his round. And he goes, okay, okay. He said, okay, and let it go. Then round six, he got back to what he was doing again. Round seven, he skirted along the ropes again, um, but just briefly. So I said, stay back into the middle of the ring. I said, it's time to start nudging him back now. Don't walk into the fire yet, but start adding that right hand behind the double jabs and nudging back. But then he skirted up against the ropes again, and, and that's all she wrote. Yeah. And I think George actually handed the defeat excellently. Mentally, he handed that better than the first one. Um, and he didn't want nothing easy. He didn't want nothing easy. He said, I don't want to come back in some bullshit fight. I want to come back in a real fight. And that's why we chose... Rebrasti for the European title. I was going to say, like, how did um, you know, the, the highs of entering the ring in front of eighty thousand at Wembley compare with the low of your fighter being, you know, knocked out in front of the cauldron and picking that back up? How did it, how did that moment feel? Uh, yeah, there's not really a high going in for me because I'd I'd uh, I'd be back to that thing I said when I was first with Freddie. I couldn't ever get excited about meeting big fighters or famous people because you'd, you wouldn't be able to serve them. And at the same token, you can't get excited about being at Wembley in front of 80,000 people, or for me, uh, in my opinion, I can't get excited about it because I'm not there to, to get excited about there. I'm supposed to try and stay calm and, and, and guide, him, guide him through the fight. So, But the, the low can definitely <laughs> was definitely there. So there was no high in the way in. There was just focus. But the low on the way out is, is horrible. I mean, you're, the good thing was from a, from a physical point of view, because whenever your fighter's in, a, in a, a really, really hard war, say like Eamon was against um, Toriano Johnson in, in, in New York, that, that's a fight that just keeps you awake at night, just worried, stiff, watching them, breathing, and making sure they're okay and just... That's probably the second time that happened to me in my career as a coach. It happened in my my first fighter had a title fight, Sammy Stewart for an NBF title, and um, and it was just I stayed awake all night watching him. Um, but with that fight, George got hit with you know a great right hand. It's not like he took punishment; he got knocked out. So the physical side, I wasn't too concerned about. Um, but yeah, I was absolutely. Absolutely gutted for him. I was absolutely. You just are, aren't you? You. Everybody in the camp has given everything to prepare that man, and then you know it's always going to be fifty-fifty, isn't it? Yeah. It's always it's always a two-horse race. There's always two men in there, and uh, and uh, so you know, going on fight night, you've got a hundred percent confidence, but you'd be foolish to 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 believe that you know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's that's not the case, um, and it's got it when you have to deal with the reality of it. Yeah, and ultimately, Paddy, with, with in your partnership with George Gross, you had five fights together, three of them world title fights, uh, two wins, but you had three losses, the two to Froch, and you finished up after Badu Jack, uh, a disappointing defeat in a close fight. Um, and after you split, George Groves went to join uh, Shane McGuigan's camp, and it was a pretty. It was a bad split, wasn't it? It wasn't really that, that amicable. He spoke, in the, he spoke in the press and he criticised you. He said, you know, things... He, said, he suggested that you'd been unprofessional in your dealings with him. Did you guys fall out and have you made up since or how's your relationship with him now? We don't hold hands anymore and he doesn't send me Christmas cards. But um, it wasn't... A, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a bad split from my end. Um, I just told him I was leaving. We've we've given it our shots, and it's it's obviously not it's obviously not working. Uh, he took it, and and whatever way he took it, 
um, it makes sense why from a fighter's energy point of view it makes sense why he would blame me because he still needed he needed to still be able to go on and win a world title so the first fight was Howard Foster's fault the second fight was a punch from the gods and the third fight was my fault so so far none of it was his fault so he could go on and do it again mentally so I accept that I um, I don't accept the things he said purely because they're not true um, so but that is what it is um, but I accept the reasons why he did it and he went on and became a world champion so congratulations to him and Shane and just yeah, on that do you ever think there'll be uh, maybe down the line maybe another 10 years there might be a, a reconciliation beer you know look sure we gave it a go didn't work out we can move on or I will run up to him on Curraclough Beach we'll put on some slow music we'll wear some white shirts and we'll just run towards each other and hug <laughs> I I have no bad feelings towards him. It is what it is. Life is way too short. There is people dying and being murdered and all sorts of shit. And I cannot be too concerned about about stuff that happens in life. I am. I was like I said. I was. I, it was. It was. It wasn't cool to be able to hear the. Um, to hear the things he was saying after the the effort that we had put in um but uh it is what it is it's life yeah suck it up